I tell you, when we worship like that, and it's, it's just, he's worthy, no matter how it feels at times, sometimes it's not, but he's worthy, that's why we worship. If we could just sit there all day and go home, honestly, that's the point, right? Isn't that the point? You know, worship is, the church is called to, to reach those who don't yet worship and teach them how to worship. That's really the summation of it. All right. We are in a series. Please go to Luke chapter 15. And the presence of the Lord. You know, there's no money that can buy that. None on the earth. There's nothing you can do to earn that, buy it, purchase it, keep it, bottle it, sell it. It's just the goodness of God. Amen. Don, I know you were going to speak. I'm going to go into this. Is that okay? Can you share next week? This wonderful man is... uh, a good friend of mine. Actually, you, why don't you come, Doc? Okay, next week. All right. Uh, this wonderful man just did some amazing trips down into Africa, and he's got some things to show us. We're going to see that next week. He's just going to share with us. They have many orphanages down there and many, a lot of work that they do down there, and uh, he's pioneered most, I would say, all of it, but he wouldn't like that, but that's the truth. And uh, so, yeah, he's, we're looking forward to that. And thanks for your friendship, Don. You have no idea how much it means to me. Could you turn it up, please, a little bit? All right. Can you hear me at the back? We can. All right. Let me tell you actually something funny I heard. Just why not? Careful. Uh, I heard this joke, and sometimes I will just share them here because they, they're funny. And, uh, and joy is wonderful. I, uh, I heard a guy said, um, it was, I think it was a gentleman speaking to his friend, and he says, you know, my wife... My wife and I had a big fight, and, and she keeps telling me I have just two major faults, just two faults. The friend said, what are they? He says, well, the one is that I don't listen, and the other is, uh, I don't know, something else. So, I just, I, I really like that. I really thought that was funny. So, yeah, all right. So, Jesus came to pay the price and the penalty for sin that started in the garden when Adam disobeyed the Lord and sin came into the earth and Jesus comes to pay the price and the penalty for sin, but it's not just for sin. In fact, in the Old Testament, they were what they call sin conscious. The book of Hebrews speaks about it. Every day they woke up, their thoughts were on sin and what not to do. But the Bible says when there's a sacrifice that will come that will be a once and for all sacrifice, which was Christ's sacrifice, that we are no longer called to live sin conscious. We're no longer called to wake up with only what we shouldn't do. We're actually called to wake up and look at him and just do what he says. It's a, it's a very different way of living. So Jesus came to deal with sin, yes, but to deal with sin in order to give us access and to restore fellowship and partnership with our Father in heaven. If we, I think as Western Christians, if we would grasp how much God is interested in partnership with you, we would be amazed we would be amazed. He looks to partner with people, with saints. He really, really does. And so Jesus spent a large part of his time revealing who his father was and revealing what his kingdom was like. And he did that because the religious leaders, specifically the religious leaders, and that's what we're going to get, we're going to carry on today, they had developed a system, a religious system that was so different from God's heart because they were focused on, in a sense, the law but not the heart behind the law. And they developed a system that was so different from the heart of God, and they were actually the ones geared for, trained for, 
purposed for to prepare God's people for the coming Messiah, and the, com- the coming Messiah arrived and stood in front of them, and they couldn't see him. They couldn't recognize him. They had no idea. They had moved so far away from the heart of God. And so they started adding things to the law. Now, you may not believe me, this is in the Bible. It's not taught on a lot. I don't know why, but it's in the Bible. Go look at Galatians 1, Matthew 16, Mark chapter 7. It's in numerous places. Where they added something called the tradition of the elders or the tradition of the fathers. They added all these things to what God had said because they were so focused on the law. They were so focused except not focused on the Lord and on his heart, they added all these things. And those things that they added, that's what they became zealous about. That's what they became passionate about. It's kind of like church culture in the modern world. You go into certain streams and movements, and that's culture's fine, but people start to celebrate the culture that that church has built or the culture of that area instead of what built it. Hello? That's... It's kind of the same thing, and it keeps happening throughout church history over and over and over. A powerful move, revival, awakening, or something, or a truth of God is revealed into people, into the earth, and it's this explosion of glory and wonder, and actually holiness becomes a natural outworking. A person's life is cleaned up, everything is different, the shame is gone, and, and it's wonderful. And then that we focus on, you know, trying to be right. And slowly the life starts to die because we take our eyes off the one who did it. And it happens throughout church history as well. And so here we have the story of a father with two sons, Luke 15. And Jesus is actually sitting with sinners. Why don't we go to Luke 15, verse 1 and 2. This is the context. It says, Then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to him to hear him. And the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them, so he spoke a parable to them. So Jesus, I believe with all my heart that Jesus here is addressing the religious system. He's speaking to Pharisees who were disgusted at his treatment and love over people who they didn't deem worthy. He's speaking into this thing of this religious system that is separate from the heart of God, even though God said a lot of what they did, they had missed his heart, and they had added things and celebrated those things they added. So Jesus gives three parables to these disgusted Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes and lawyers. He tells them about a lost sheep, a lost coin, and lost sons. We call it the parable of the prodigal son, as I've said many times. Jesus never called it that. He said a certain father had two sons, trying to reveal the heart of the father but he's addressing a religious system. So the first week, we covered the prodigal son, the story that is very well known, very famous. Uh, but we all celebrate second chances. We all, that's the way we would say it. We all celebrate love and mercy and grace. We all enjoy that. We love that. And so the prodigal story applies to us all. We've all been there. We've all walked to some degree part of that road. But the story of the second son, for me, is far more prevalent to this culture, to what we deal with, to what we face every day, to what we see in our workplace, in our families, in our home, this performance culture that is set up. And it is invaded into the church, and so that's like a, similar to what they were dealing with there, a religious system, a religious culture that is trying to be worthy when he's already made you worthy. Trying to earn what he's already given 
So I'm going to call it the word is religion, and I know I'm recapping. We've done a lot of this. Who was here for the last two weeks? Most of you. Okay, that actually helps. So religion in my, the word religion is not a bad word. The Bible talks about pure religion, look after widows and orphans and not love your life unto death. But I'm talking about religion that Colossians 2 speaks about. It says this, having an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion and false humility. It's this religious activity. We defined it as form without structure. You know, a person's dead body is there, but there's no life left. The form is there, but the life is gone. That's what happens. God comes to do something, and something is birthed and created because of the life of God. Or a church grows because there's the life of God, and that life draws people. And then they focused on growing it instead of the life that drew the people. Form without, form without life. Structure without connection. Activity without transformation. Lots of being busy, but no transformation of the heart. And function without fellowship. You know, working with people, living with people, living around people, never knowing them, never actually knowing them, never actually knowing them. Function without fellowship, the religious system. A telltale sign, because what we're talking about is markers. How do we know when this is start to come into our heart? Because it comes to us all, and it comes to us frequently, especially in a Western culture, in a very performance-driven, success-driven culture. It comes to us all. This is it's not to make anyone feel guilty. It's to set people free. There's certain signs, markers that we see in this story of the second son. This is what happens when we live like that, when we embrace that kind of thinking and that kind of culture. But a telltale sign is when a person makes a mistake, when a person messes up. Religion says, we've, who said this as a teenager? I messed up. My dad's going to kill me. Who's heard people say, I messed up. Oh, my dad's going to... Relationship says, I messed up, I better call my dad. Big difference. Big difference. Religion versus relationship. So, we're going to try to have a hard stop by the grace of our Heavenly Father. At 11.20, I want to spend the last 10 minutes speaking to you about the why. why. Why am I speaking about this message now? Dwayne has no idea. He came up and literally said what I had prepared, and we haven't talked for the last 10 minutes of the message. But let's go to Luke 15. We're going to read. Let's just read the whole story um, from verse 11. I know we've read it a few times in the last couple of weeks, but can we read together? So Luke 15, verse 11 says, Then he said, A certain man, this is in response to how the Pharisees were upset at his treatment and love shown to these sinners and tax collectors. And he said, A certain man had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the youngest son gathered all together and journeyed to a far country. And there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in that land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. Now we've looked deep into all these things, what they meant culturally, how the people in that society and those, those Jewish fathers and men around him would have heard it with a shame and honor society and how this would have been so, so shocking to them. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate. And no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish with hunger? 
I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And, he brings the, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it. And let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is, and is found. And they began to be merry. Now his older son was in the field. And he came and drew near to the house. And he heard music and dancing. And so he called one of his servants and asked, What do these things mean? covered this last week. Religion is joyless. It's like you can't even understand it. What's all this joy? This good news is supposed to be serious. So he called one of your servants and asked, what are these things meant? And he said to him, your brother has come and has, and because we have received, oh, sorry, your brother has come and because he, your father, has received him safe and sound, your father has killed a fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore, his father came and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I've never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive and was lost and is found. There's so much in there culturally that I wish we had time to get into. We're not going to. I just want to read some of the and go over some of the last points of markers and signs that religion has crept into our hearts. But also what's going on there is the fatted calf actually kind of represents the Lord. The sacrifice to show worth, to show value to show worth and to show value. And the older son, because there was such a big deal in that culture, could not fathom. He said, Father, I've been working for you all your life. I've been slaving for you, is the Greek, acting, thinking like a slave in his father's house. And you've shown worth to your son by killing the fatted calf, but I've been earning that worth. And you didn't show it to me, but I've been earning it. It's a picture of salvation. You can't earn it. That's what Jesus is largely trying to represent you. It's not what you can earn. So, are we still together? Marks or signs that religion, the religious culture, a performance culture that we can be aware of, that can, when it's become into our hearts or into our church or into an area or into a system. Firstly, religion is joyless. We touched on that. Secondly, religion creates positional identity. The identity based on position instead of your birth, which is a son being born again, a son of God, a daughter of God. That's your identity. And religion, religious culture, creates positional identity. Thirdly, religion values the traditional structure, such a big one, more than those within the structure. Religion values structure more than the actual people the structure was formed for. And we went over that last week. And fourthly, religion makes a service a task rather than the delight or the responsibility of a son. So, 
Number five. We actually did a little bit of number five last week, but can we just go to the next one? Number five. I'm just going to teach as if we've been here all week. Religion teaches us to celebrate wage over inheritance. It actually builds that culture within us. Wage is good. To earn for something, to work for something, to learn to work hard, to get a job, just, you know, young, you know, get a job, work. That's good. That's healthy. But a religious culture and a performance culture begins to instruct our heart and put it into the culture to celebrate what I can earn over what I can be given in a very, very big way. What did he say to his father? I have never transgressed your commandment at any time. It's quite a thing to say. And yet you've never given me a young goat that I make, make merry with your friends. The son was saying, I serve and obey, and then you give because I've earned. So I've done my part, you're not doing your part. There's function there, but there's no relationship. There's no relationship whatsoever. And it comes into the church in major, 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 major ways. The Jewish men would have been absolutely stunned. You mean there was no reward? He followed all the rules. He followed all the rules, all the things. He did all the things right. This is what we celebrate. You know, he was a good rule follower. And now you're saying he's not going to get a reward. I don't understand. They would have been stunned. Jesus says, if you want to know what the Father is like, look at me. Because obedience is always important for the believer. But obedience from a self-righteous heart is just the action required to demand something I want. It's to go through a system. Well, I can, I can be self-righteous. I can do all the things because I know what to do in order to get what I want. It's the old nature, the self-nature that we received in the garden from the devil, from Adam. It's that at its, at its finest. Look what I can do to get what I want. It really is. That's what it is. But obedience from a son because of love and respect to a father and son, love and respect in the relationship that brings forth the same action outwardly but entirely different motive. That's from his kingdom, which is not of this world. That's from his heart. That's from his heart. Because motives, why we do something, if we could see in the invisible realm that our motives, I believe, our motives are louder than sometimes our actions. We need action. With all that's going on in the world right now, we need action. We need to take action, absolutely. But the motive behind the action is so important. Let's look at this little scripture, 1 Corinthians 3. I find Paul uh, constantly working in the New Testament. Throughout the New Testament, it's like he's working hard constantly to bring one major thing across. Do what you do because of who God is to you and knowing how he sees you and knowing how he loves you and gratefulness over what he's done, that's the motive. He constantly throughout the New Testament is saying, that's why, do all things unto him, do it for him, do it with him. Yeah, in 1 Corinthians 3, he says, for we, Paul speaking about himself, are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, speaking about the church, and you are God's building. But according to the grace of God which was given to me, Paul says as an apostle, as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and then another builds on it. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on this foundation, so the truth of salvation starts that Jesus did it, not you. And on that foundation, there's many things that the Lord will want to build. Many truths, many Truth in the heart, which becomes like a building that you can actually rest in. And God wants to build on that foundation. And he says, now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, 
or wood, hay, and straw. Each one's work will become clear. For the day, capital D, the day at the end, will declare it. In other words, will test your work. And, each, and because it will be revealed by fire. That's the fire of testing to see if it's genuine. And the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. So I said this last week. It's going to be a big pile of stuff in the end. It's gold, silver, precious stones, wood, stubble, straw. And in a sense, the Lord will set it on fire. Whatever is built that is not from him and of him gets burned up. What remains is what remains. Paul knows this. Now, why did he use that? Wood, hay, and straw. Stones. Why that? He's speaking to people of Corinth. And you don't have time to go down this track, but it's actually extremely important. What did the Israelites build when they were slaves in Egypt? They built out of mud, hay, and straw as slaves, building another's kingdom. They had to get set free from slavery, picture of salvation. Yeah, Paul's speaking to Corinth. Corinth was destroyed when it was under Greece. Julius Caesar took it over, reestablished it, rebuilt it as part of Rome, and it became the, the administrative capital of the province of Achaia. And they had this massive slave area because Rome was built with stone and, and, and you know, strong because they wanted to, it to tell of their glory through the generations. And it has. It's, a lot of it is still there. A lot of it lasted because they're built with stone, precious stones. But there's a whole part of Rome that never, that it doesn't, doesn't live today, doesn't carry on. And that is actually known as slave dwellings. Slave dwellings. The wealthy Romans didn't want to do the work themselves, so they hired slaves. It was a massive slave trade. And the slaves actually outnumbered the Romans three to one. But they were like over there. They lived somewhere else. And their own dwellings that they had to build were built with wood, hay, and straw. Paul knows that they know this. So he uses an example from their day actually speaking about, I believe, partly what you build is sometimes with your mindset. It's the same outward action. Slave, when slaves build for themselves, what they build doesn't last. When you build with that motive, with the, with the old nature, trying to prove, trying to earn, trying to, I need to do this thing, I need to, that's like building, doing things out of the old slave nature, a slave to sin, a slave to the, um, and when you do it with that, Paul said, oh, it, it's a lot of work, but it, it doesn't last. There's a day coming when that will be tested, and your motive is actually important. Your motive is important. Stop trying to earn it. Stop thinking like a slave and an orphan, my children. And when you do something, when you build something, outwardly it can look the same. But the one will, la will last the test of time. Denzel Washington, I love Denzel. He says, uh, you'll never see a U-Haul behind a hearse. You can't take it with you. Just, you can't. What will last the test of time is the motive through which we did stuff. It's a really, really big deal, as apparently I say a lot. We can be busy being busy. We really can. Busy being busy, but you can't take it with you. Even busy being busy in a church culture. But one day when it's tested, it's wood, hay, and straw. Because I'm trying to prove, I'm trying to earn, I'm trying to show, I'm trying to, it's wood, hay, and straw. When we build with a slave mindset, what we build doesn't last. 
And Paul knows this. And throughout the New Testament, he's saying, guys, know what it is to be a son. Know what it is to have a father's embrace. Know what that is. Because when you build, when you obey from that heart, when you walk with him from that heart, oh, that'll last forever. Literally forever. Religion, number six, leads to a divided house. I won't go down this one too long. It says that this older son was angry and he would not go in. He refused to go in. And so we have a father outside with his angry son and a son inside with guests that probably are still kind of mad with him. And so we actually have a divided house. What does Matthew 12 say? It comes up behind me. Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. So this son with all his hard work, with all his faithfulness, with all his, I've never transgressed your command, I've earned, I've been a good little Christian, I've done the things, and I've, with all of that, he's actually working to divide and put an end to his own line. He's building a divided house. Why? Because he valued the structure which was given to make the family strong. The culture which was given to make strong families. He's so focused on that at the cost of the family. He's so focused on that. We must do what's right. That he's killing his own family in order to do that. It's so subtle. You guys aware of what I'm speaking about? Is it just me that has to process this or are you with me? And why does this happen? I'm going to spend a little bit more time on this one. This happens because religion forgets the dream. Religion, uh, performance culture, religious culture forgets the dream. He comes along and he says, this son of yours. Think about that. It's his brother. This son of yours. Jesus is telling this to Pharisees, religious leaders of a religious system who cannot even recognize who he is, but also who have disgusted at these sinners and, and these tax collectors. So Jesus tells a parable of a brother who can't even call his brother a brother. He's revealing something in the heart. And being blinded by religion, we've all had it, whether you know it or not, you have been, causes anger and offense to arise in our heart when someone else appear doesn't put value on the things that we think they should or doesn't value what we value. The older son goes, how can you not value hard work? Don't you know hard work is good for you? Don't you know? How can you do this? You're a... And so we actually, naturally, we set up an external calibration of morality, of values, and then we judge others according to it. And when they don't measure up, we get upset and angry and frustrated with a peer. It's not even his son, it's his brother. He doesn't even have authority over him. It's his brother. And he's like, how could you? Uh, yeah, what's that called? Control. Oh, boy. Control. It's a control. It's a controlling spirit. You know that it's possible, it is possible in God's house, in God's house, to have an environment and a culture that is holy, honoring, and joyful with zero control. It's possible because I've experienced it. 
and because the word tells me it's possible. See, Christian leaders, I can say business leaders, family leaders, leaders of homes, parents, but Christian leaders often forget, I know because I've done it many times and the Lord has to, we have to be reminded, they forget that it's about working the vineyard with my dad. What did he say to his son? Son, I'm always with you. I'm always with you. The vineyard in the Bible talks, it's like a reference to the church. And leaders forget that what's important is that I get to work the vineyard with my dad. That's what leadership is. I'm working the vineyard, but I'm working with my dad. They forget that, and it becomes about the vineyard and what the vineyard must look like and how the church must be and how to do this. And, and then at the cost of people, they have this thing that must look a certain way, and then abuse and control begins to arise, and people get hurt because you focused on the vineyard instead of, I'm with my dad. Big difference. Big difference. We start to enforce what we think the vineyard should look like and focus on what the vineyard should look like. But he said, but son, I'm, I'm always with you. I'm always with you. Isn't that the point? Because the performance culture, religious culture, is destination-oriented. And I hear it all the time. This is my call, my destiny. That's good, that's great. God has put a call and a destiny in you and in your heart, that's wonderful. But it's so destination-focused that you like, you know, you hurt everyone else on the way to get there. Everything, get out of my way. I must go to where God's called me to go to kill this guy, sort this one out. Because Jesus loves me. Don't you know? You know? I see it all the time. <laughs> the kingdom culture is not destination focused, but journey oriented. He says, yeah, we're going somewhere, son, but the point is that you're going, and when you're going, you're with me. That's the Father's heart. That's the Father's focus. Yeah, okay, that's great, but you're with me. You are always with me, son. I'm focused on the journey, because on the journey, I get to grow in relationship while you pursue the dream I put in your heart. When you get saved, friends, God puts a dream in your heart, dreams and a dream, one dream or many dreams. He puts things in your heart. And it, it comes alive inside of you. And you remember, you, you ever, I encourage you, go think of your personal history with the Lord. When you like the first son, the first time you felt that robe of righteousness on your back, you felt clean inside for the first time. You knew, man, I'm clean. When you felt sandals on your feet, purpose, you felt the ring on your finger when you used to, you know, you used to step out in God. You used to pray for that person, speak to that person. You, in a sense, there's a ring on your finger. There's, I know I can kind of spend on his account. I can, I can take a risk because I'm, because I'm with my father. And then it becomes about how many times did you do it? How many times did you step out? How many times? It's so subtle. But it's as wide as the world is the difference because it's the motive. And what a slave builds doesn't last. Doesn't last. God puts dreams in our hearts. Religion, the religious culture, performance culture, causes us to forget that dream. And to forget what he put in my heart. And we go back and remember your 
your times with the Lord, when He touched your heart, when He changed your heart, when He touched you at that conference or that worship event or, or in your bedroom, and you just go over your own history with the Lord. I encourage you, do it often. I do. Lord, don't let me forget. Don't let me forget. Go over your history and let that dream rise again in your heart because he still believes in that, even if you don't. But it's religious culture will destroy that, just like that. And we bash everyone else out the way, I would tell them, this is because God loves me. Son, you are always with me. Lastly, actually two more. Religion tries to earn what's already been given. I won't go to that. I'll just say this. This is the lie that the enemy brought to Adam. Try to earn what you already have. It's a, it's a major part of sin in the religious culture, the, the performance culture. Perform. Came to the second son. Turn these stones to bread. Perform. Perform. Prove who you are. Tries to earn what we've already been given. You know that the second son never one time referred to his inheritance or his brother's inheritance as his. Not one time. He said, destroyed your livelihood, Father, your livelihood with harlots. He never even referred to it as his own. Not once. The younger brother at least knew he could. The older son, performing, religious, perfectly obedient, never understood sonship. Never understood it. Never referred to it as his own. I can envision the father saying, my livelihood? What do you mean? Oh, son, when I gave that inheritance to your younger brother, now it's his. It's no longer mine. So when he came back, what he does is that is up to him. All I see is the opportunity to restore a son. Big difference. Lastly, <clears throat> religion blinds us from what's right. I had a whole, just such a wonderful things to say about this out of the Bible, but we won't have time. But religion blinds us to what's right. What does the father say to the son? Son, it is right. That word is meat in the, in the King James. It is meat. It's kind of strange. It means so right that it's necessity. It's right by necessity. It is right that we should celebrate because your brother has come home. He's your brother. This son, second son, was so focused on what is right that he could no longer see what's right. That's what he said. I've never transgressed your... I'm focused on, you know, to do the right thing. And it's good to do the right thing. But he was so focused on what's right that he became blinded and he couldn't anymore tell what's right. Friends, in this hour, oh, I'm going ahead of myself, the church can't afford to forget what's right because the religious culture has gripped it, because the world doesn't know. We are living in an hour of Isaiah 5, where evil is called good, good is called evil. There's confusion, there's clouded, everything's clouded. And a religious culture will force the church, Christians, those that carry the answer to the nations, Jesus Christ, to focus so much on what's right. Well, you did it wrong. What's right that they can no longer see what's right. And the motives for which they do it is because they're angry at what you're doing instead of to restore you. 
and it doesn't last. For this son, with a performance mindset, his father has to point out, my son, oh son, I love you, but you've forgotten what's right. You can't see it anymore. Because you won't even call your brother your brother. You value the structure that makes our family strong more than actually the family. You've forgotten what's right, but the whole time you think you know what it is. And it, you're wrong. This is right, that we love your brother. We celebrate with him because he was lost and now he's found. This is what's right, son. You can't tell anymore. Let me help you. <laughs> That's God's heart. And I was going to show you that Paul was such a person. He really was. Paul was so focused on what's right that he was killing God's people <laughs> as a Pharisee. He was so focused on what's right that he was killing God's people. And God has to knock him off his high horse, literally. Say, why are you persecuting me? Say, who are you? You're so focused on what's right that he has to get taught by, loved by, healed by in Acts chapter 9, hosted by, fed by disciples that he was there to kill. He was humbled, and he became the man that said, I am compelled by love because of how they treated him. Paul was such a man, but he moved from religion to love. The religious culture is everywhere. The performance culture is everywhere, and it builds nothing good. It builds nothing good. Not in his kingdom. Can we change gears for the last seven minutes? Do you guys have it in you? We're going to go from like gear one to like gear five. You know, when you're like, just, that's what we're going to do. 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3 to 6. I want to talk to you about something very quickly. The reason I want to talk to you about this is people love this series. I've done it before. They go, you know, we've had people respond in tears and phoning us and just, it's good. The series is good. It's good to show the heart of God, the love of a father, who he is. But why this and why now? And I want to maybe look at it through this lens real quick. 2 Corinthians 10. I don't know why I opened my Bible. I've got it here. Verse 3 to 6. For though we walk in the flesh... We do not war according to the flesh, for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down imaginations, arguments, reasonings. That's what the word uh, uh, casting down, some of your things say thoughts, imaginations, arguments, or reasonings. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity. Let's read it again. For though we walk in the flesh, natural. We do not war. We do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. And that actually means carnal as in the old nature and carnal as in physical. It's the motives I was talking about. Or practical like physical. They are not carnal, but mighty where in God for pulling down strongholds. What are strongholds? A stronghold is a castle or a fortress. It's it was actually a stronghold overlooking Corinth. That's why he uses that, a big castle. It's where a battle or a battalion or a troop or soldiers can actually go into a stronghold, find rest, change, recuperate, whatever, and then go out into battle again. It's where an enemy or you can camp in the midst of a battle and then from that place launch an attack. Paul is saying here that thoughts 
that are against what God knows to be true, the knowledge of God. That's not just knowledge about God, it's what God knows to be true. What God has said and what he knows to be true. Truth itself. And he says this, he says, to pull down strongholds and casting down imaginations or reasonings and every high thing, high thing, that was a barrier or a rampart, every high thing, self-exalted thing, that's how you know it's not from the kingdom, every high self-exalted thing that is contrary or against the truth, against what God knows to be true and about who God is and so forth. He says, this is our warfare. So he's actually saying that the enemy can find rest in the ideas and the ideals that are built up within a person or within a culture that are against what God knows to be true. And we are called to pull those strongholds down by casting down thoughts, imaginations, and so forth. Not just checking your thoughts. It's, it's not just that. There are ideas and ideals out there, and I've got all the Greek words for you, but we don't have time to go into it. Right now, all over the place, that are contrary to what God knows to be true. Like I said, Isaiah 5. Contrary to what God knows to be true. And these, this fortress, these stones, this, this castle, this stronghold, is basically thought patterns. Thought patterns that started somewhere and they've built into something that is now believed as truth or fact, but it's not. There's many. Evolution, abortion, pick one. There are strongholds that exist. There's, and I don't know if there's ever been a time on the earth when so many strongholds and lies that are built up as truth have come simultaneously against as a barrier, as a rampart, as a self-exalted thought, a self-exalted truth, a self-exalted fact of society. Well, that's just the way it is. So many in the world as we have right now, that have come directly against the work of the kingdom of God. I don't believe there's ever been a time like it. Imaginations, arguments, reasonings, ideas, ideals. And God is looking for people to have the mind of Christ. That's what the Bible says. So when Jesus was training his disciples... He literally says to them, actually, let me read it to you. He taught his disciples about potential influences in their life that were negative. And he warns them and he says, take heed. Now, that, to us, that's like saying, watch out. I don't say to my son, take heed of the car in the street. I say, watch out. Okay, take heed. It's not for our culture, but take heed, watch out. Beware of what? Of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. The religious system, and I can, we can go into all the Greek, and it was actually literally talking about the religious system. In the Matthew 16, he says the doctrine, their doctrine. The religious system and the political system. He warned his disciples, think about it. He warned his disciples, watch out that their way of thinking doesn't influence your way of thinking. Watch out, be careful, because it's like leaven. It starts with an idea. It starts with a thought which comes into a society, into a person, and spreads throughout that whole thing and now becomes a barrier and a rampart, a self-exalted, high ideal, 
declaring, I'm the truth, when it's not, or this is the fact, when it's not. Watch out for that because it wants to control you too. Be careful of it, my children. Be careful of it. Be careful of it. And the religious system will make it sound like you're right and that you're doing all the right things. Because the, the, the religious system, someone defined it this way, is where God is at the center in many ways concerning speech and knowledge, but he remains personally unknown and is powerless in his expression. No power in the church, not people don't know God. And he warned them, that's why I'm going over the second son. He warned them, he said, be careful of this religious system that makes God powerless in your midst, that way he's not known, but you know how to talk about him, and you know about him, but you don't know him. He said, be careful, it'll come in like leaven. Why? Because it will creep into you so that you will not be able to pull down ideals, ideas, concepts, thoughts, truths, strongholds that literally sit over nations and over regions that I've put in you my spirit to begin to pull that down without destroying the people, to begin to pull that down. That's actual warfare. Not crying, screaming, casting out. That's very minor compared to what I'm talking about. This is actually the meaning of repentance. It's actually the meaning of repentance. A lot of people view repentance as crying at the altar. And that's good because there's a lot of emotions and sorrow and the Bible says sorrow can lead to, that's good. Those things are not bad, but that's not real repentance is to change the way you think. So instead of just coming and crying and being sorry and confessing, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. That's good, that makes you feel better. That's good. Genuine repentance says God, I've, okay, I've done that, I feel better, thank you, but God, I'd actually given myself to believe something, leaven, something had come in, I'd given myself to believe something that caused that natural response, that, that what I did came from somewhere else in my heart, and Lord, I will now give myself to repentance, a process through which I break down the lies that I was actually thinking were true, break down the lies that I've believed about myself, and about him, who he is, what he thinks, how he sees me. And I will give myself to repentance to put truth into me that no matter what comes, I will stand on truth while loving people. Friends, there has never been a time on the earth where God's people need to remember this. And this truth that we're talking about, the embrace of the Father, is one of those foundational platforms, if you will, of absolute truth, that unless that is established, the truths and the strength that God wants to put on top of that, he can't. Because how can you stand and fight alongside the Lord if you think he's doing something to you, but it's actually the enemy? How can you stand up and face something and you think, well, I don't know if this is God or if it's us? You can't. This has to be so deep in you. My father loves me. He loves me. He loves me. I'm going to make mistakes, but I'm going to run to him. It has to be so deep because what is going on in our society and in our world, it will not be impacted at all by religious sentiment and religious cliches. 
it will not work. We need to once again say, God, put truth in me, in the inward parts, that I know the truth. And then the reasons I do what I do, oh, very different. This is needed now, more than ever before. More than ever before. And that's why this, the thing about the prodigal son, it's good, and the, and the lost, the religious son, that's good. But it's needed now. That truth, that foundational, to, to receive the embrace of my father, that I can stand and begin to build things, to pull down thoughts, ideals, and strongholds, and the fear of being rejected by people, hurt by people, that all has a power over you if you are putting your identity in them and their culture and their world. When you no longer put your identity there, but you get it from him, you can love them while they're shouting at you. That's okay, I love you, but this is the truth. Big difference. And this is the hour we are in. Can we stand, please? I said it last week. God's people must know who He is, must know who He is, so they can know who they are, so they can reveal or show who He is. Absolutely essential. Absolutely essential. I trust the series was helpful to you. We are privileged to be having my young father next week with us, so that's going to be wonderful. <laughs>